Amen. Thanks, Blake. Good morning. Uh, I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do it this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, we're going to take a break again, I know. Uh, as many of you have said, I, I, I let the cat out of the bag that we're going to talk about lament last week, and we changed the plan. And I had many of you come to me and say, man, I was really hoping uh, that we would, we would have uh, that, con- that conversation and be able to talk about that in the sermon. So it's coming. It's going to be a few weeks. Uh, but this morning I want to take another kind of diversion, another one-week you know, one break from what we've been doing for the better part of a year, just in the middle of summer, to draw our attention to, I think, something that's very important uh, from this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it, you can look there in Hebrews 10. If not, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And so as we read together this morning, uh, let's look at these uh, few verses from verse 19 to verse 25. And we'll read together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Pastors, in case you didn't know, really hate the summer months because attendance on Sundays inevitably plummets. And for pastors, that's the same thing as sales being down for a business or the stock market taking a dip for investors. And without school being in session, what often happens is our schedules get disrupted, which means attendance at church is sporadic, and that too is cause for great self-pity among pastors because as the congregation comes and goes throughout vacations and summer camps and general summer laziness due to it being the summer break, we, the faithful few, the only ones left, have to show up and stare at the empty seats and dream of sleeping in or being at the beach or whatever the case may be. And so it's caused either for grave self-pity or self-righteousness, whichever way you look at it. But for me, (laughs) self-pity. Most times. I say all that because of what I want to talk about this morning and how self-serving it might appear to be and how paternal it could feel to you. And I don't want that. So be sure I'm I'm motivated by concern for the church when I say that I have a mild pastoral admonition. Call it a friendly reminder that has been on my heart for some time, a warning, whatever you like. I don't do this often, uh, but I felt compelled for a couple of weeks now, really, to just take a week and just remind all of us, me too, about this. Uh, and and, And so just, it's this, directly from the passage, verse 25, do not neglect the corporate gatherings of the church as some are in the habit of doing. I'm reading John Calvin, oh, excuse me, John Owen, one of those guys, John Owen, on Sin and Temptation this summer. So you have to cut me some slack, okay? Because whenever you read Owen or the other Puritans, you are necessarily provoked to diligence to the very edge of religious fanaticism. Which, even as I say, it seems to have a bitter aftertaste, uh, though I'm not sure it should. And Owen's wisdom can be summed up in a single phrase in all that he's written about Sin and Temptation. He says this, he says, either be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing it or it will be killing you. Be constantly on the assault against sin, go on the offensive 
against it, keep advancing because it is constantly trying to advance against you. Or you could say, be careful of taking a break from spiritual things because our enemy never takes a break from trying to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible says that he is a lion on the prowl in 1 Peter. Not resting lazily in the shade, but crouching in the reeds. He has us in his sights. He is stalking us. And if we let down our guard for just one minute, if we get sloppy, we'll be unaware of the danger we're in until it's too late. And in his book on temptation, Owen uses the story of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, which you might be familiar with. Uh, On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, He he uses it to illustrate our approach too often to spiritual things. Jesus takes them with him, you might remember, after the supper as he goes into the garden to pray. And he leaves them there as he goes further into the garden. And his instructions to them are, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because Jesus knew that this was the crucial moment for all of them. And what he wanted from his men is for them to be ready and on the alert and at the ready as he was because they, they were coming to get him. And the whole thing was about to blow up. But if you know the story, you know that when he returns from his wrestling with God in prayer, he finds them not alert and ready, not watching and praying. He finds them asleep. He finds them resting. He finds them taking a break. And so I'm arguing this morning from the scriptures for diligence in the summer particularly, because it's the time of the year where we're tempted most, I think, to kind of pull back, take a break, maybe get a little sloppy, I'm arguing for diligence towards spiritual things, particularly towards the corporate worship of the church, because I think that's what Hebrews 10 is arguing for either. Look at verse 25. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And I'm going to make three arguments or use three reasons for why Sunday morning corporate worship is so important, particularly in this time of the year. And their three arguments are just this, and these are the three points of the outline. First, because we need gospel truth. Secondly, because we need gospel friends. And thirdly, because we need gospel practices. And without all three of those things, we don't stand a chance against the powers that are aligned against us for our destruction. And so let's look at those three points together, if you would, as we walk through this passage together this morning, beginning with just this. First, diligence towards corporate worship is what I'm arguing for. First, because we need gospel truth. And worship is like a booster shot of gospel truth every week. Now, this letter to the Hebrew Christians is full of gospel truths, one after the other. We'll read it in a few weeks in community Bible reading. And the writer piles them on top of one another. And this passage is no different. So if you look at verse 19, you see all of these things he's, he's meditating on. It's basically a summary statement of everything he's been saying. Beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain... That is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, that is a deep ocean of gospel truth. We're told of the power of Jesus' blood and how his death on the cross has opened up the holy places to us. He is our high priest, that he cleanses us, that he's taken away our guilt and condemnation We can live without the fear and the sense of condemnation that plagues us. There are at least, if we wanted to make it so, there are at least seven sermons in those four verses. I promise you I could get seven out of them. I promise. And the reason the letter of the Hebrews is so full of passages like this, 
because is because the people are, who these are people he's writing to who have begun with the gospel, but they're not standing in it. Uh, they're turning away from the gospel and going back into moralism. And I should define those terms just so that we're all on the same page. By the gospel, I mean what God has done for me in Christ. And by moralism, I mean what I must do for God. And so the question for us is, do you believe that your relationship with God is based upon what you do for him or what he does for you? We talk about all this, time, this all the time, don't we? Which is it? You see, the good news of Christianity is that God is the one doing the doing. And the Hebrews started out with their feet firmly planted in the gospel of God's doing for them. But they began to waver is what happens. And we can, pick, we can, we can see this in what this writer is saying here. They started to bring back in all kinds of rules and regulations and rituals and requirements. And the Hebrew writer penned this letter, verse 23, to say, hold fast. That is, don't let go of grace. Don't let deadly doing creep back in and mess things up. And we learn an important lesson here, and it's just this, that our hearts are constantly turning away from the good news of God's doing in the gospel and going back into just the, con- the condemning bad news of moralism, which is my trying desperately to do for him. And that means for us this morning that the sin underneath every sin, the sin underneath every sin, is a failure to believe the gospel of God's doing and to try to substitute it with the false gospel of our own doing. That's what we mean when we use the word unbelief. Whatever your struggle is, Whatever the point of where, where obedience seems beyond your grasp, where there's real fight and struggle in your life as you try to, if you're a Christian, if, if you're trying to progress in your faith and grow up into, you know, Christ's likeness, whatever, you know, imagery you might use, wherever there is a struggle, at its root, the real struggle is the struggle to believe the gospel will be true. Now, let me give you an example that I find... Uh, from this passage, but that's also part of my personal experience. If you look there in verses 19 through 23, the writer uses words like, verse 19, confidence, verse 22, assurance, verse 23, unwavering, right? Confidence, assurance, and unwavering, these words he uses to describe the work of God's Spirit in our lives. In other words, the gospel is meant to make you steadfast and immovable, strong, constant, and unflappable, and unfortunately... In my own life, that is not the case at all. I'm much more prone to anxiety (laughs) and constant wavering. And the problem is is anxiety and worry leads to all kinds of of trouble. It makes me selfish, for example. I I am most selfish when I am the most anxious. Right? Because anxiety... Puts me, it puts me in self-protection mode so that I'm much more concerned about taking care of me because I'm worried about what's happening to me. So I, 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 I begin to put all of my energy into taking care of me, which, of course, if I'm spending all of my time worrying about taking care of me, I'm, I'm completely ill-equipped to do anything to take care of the people in my life. It fills me with self-doubt so that I'm not as courageous as I should be. I don't take risks as I should. All of these things. And I've told you I've been reading John Owen. And Owen, one of the things he says that's been really helpful is when he began to describe how sin's cre- sin creates a certain logic, and, and that is how it has its power, how it holds power over us, is in its, its logic. The sin reasons with the heart in a certain way, promising certain rewards and threatening punishments and binding us in, uh, in this prison of the way it causes us to think. And the point Owen was making was is the only way 
to, uh, the only way to win the fight against sin is you have to reject its logic. And the only way to do that is with gospel truth, with doing theology, with preaching the gospel to your own heart. It's the only way to unseat unbelief in your heart. And it's why the Hebrews, uh, he's writing to the Hebrews here and he's so theologically dense in this letter. See, he wants, them, he wants us to do the same thing he's trying to coach them to do. He wants to find the unbelief, figure out where it is, get to the bottom of what's really going on in your heart, and then take the gospel and the truth of the gospel there. And so, you know, I, the great thing about what I get to do is I get, you, know, like, you get to watch me have a counseling session right in front of you on a weekly basis, okay? Which is a little bit unnerving for me, but probably very entertaining for you. At least I hear about it later. So... If you think about my own experience and what I've already described, what's the logic of the unbelief of my anxiety? And it's something like this. It's some, and I really do believe these things. Somewhere deep down inside of me, when I'm anxious, what I have to realize is what my heart is saying is, you know better than God how your life should go. And so you better take control. And so I do. I resort to my own plans and my own strength because, because I'm full of anxiety. But because I'm full of anxiety about it, then, every, then everybody who gets in the way of the plan that I'm working as a solution to all of the fear that I feel, if you dare get in my way, then I'm going to treat you as a threat. You see? So it destroys relationships. Or the logic of my unbelief might be something like it was for Adam and Eve at the beginning. God is holding out on you. Don't you know that? He's not generous. You can't trust him. That's a powerful lie. And so what does it mean for me, like this person who's writing this letter to these people is saying, what does it mean for me to use the gospel truth? How do I use gospel truth in the midst of that fight? Well, I have to go back uh, in my own life. I have to go back to Matthew 6 over and over again and hear Jesus say, oh, ye have little faith, because that's me. Don't be anxious. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. God takes care of them, and he loves you so much more than he does flowers and birds he's a father to you and he's generous and he will always give you all that you need see god sees he is a generous father he has his hands on your life so take yours off it it's the gospel trying to come in and break up the logic that's holding me in this pattern of anxiety or i go to romans eight thirty two all the time which says He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has parted with his most precious treasure in order to take care of our greatest need, then will he not? The logic dictates that if he has been willing to do that, then when I need some little something on a day-to-day basis, he's going to be there to give it to me. And see, this is what you have to do. This is the work of sanctification. Bringing gospel truth to the areas of unbelief where this is all the stuff. And do you understand? This is all the stuff that lies hidden underneath the surface stuff that we usually get all in a tizzy about. But this is why corporate worship is so important because we need gospel truth. We need it. It's the only way we can do battle. And so like the kids in the city on a hot summer day who escape the heat... By unscrewing the fire hydrant so that it drenches the street and their bodies with water to cool them off, our Sunday mornings together are a gospel truth drenching. The sin in us is too pervasive, the world too relentless, the enemy too cunning for us to continue to fight the battle against unbelief without a good gospel drenching. So on break, be careful of neglecting spiritual things, particularly 
our gatherings every Lord's Day. But second, second, I'm going to argue for diligence towards corporate worship because not only do we need gospel truth, but we need gospel friends. We need that truth to be encased in relationships. So the text goes on to say, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now this letter to the Hebrews also puts a high priority on friendship and community because it is the nature of sin, we're told, to hide itself from us. So you have a passage like Hebrews 3, which is our, call, which is our assurance of pardon, where the writer says, just a few chapters earlier, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, As long as it is called today that none of you, listen to this phrase, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So right there is the problem and the solution. And the problem is what what Hebrews calls the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hides itself from you. Uh, The sins that are really killing you are the ones that you don't even know about. The way that sin works in our lives is to blind us to it. So if you don't know it's there then what, what do you do? If you don't know the problem, then you spend all of your time dealing with issues that aren't really the issue. And so the problem is our lack of self-awareness. That's the real problem. Our lack of self-awareness. We don't know that we don't know. And that's a really dangerous place to be. And a lot of management firms and, and, and business solution you know, operations try to use these categories of, you know, there are people who know that they know, then there are people who know that they don't know, and then there's those that don't know that they know, and then there's the really poor saps that don't know that they don't know. You've, know, you, if you've ever heard these categories? Uh, and so I got to thinking about that, and the best way I know to illustrate that, and don't make fun, I mean, this is like deep philosophical stuff this morning, but uh, one of my favorite shows on television ever, and probably one of the funniest shows I've ever seen on television ever, is The Big Bang Theory, which is about a group of uh, science nerds, So let me use the characters in the show to illustrate this. Uh, When it comes to self-awareness like this, there are those who know that they know. There are those who know that they know. And if you're in sports, you know what this is. It's the guy who is good, and he knows he's good, and so he carries himself with a certain swagger and confidence, and he's the one you want to take the shot at the end of the game. Absolutely. Now, on the show... If you've not seen it, you really, TBS every night, I mean, you could just watch it for, you know, every day. It's great. Uh, But on the show in a comedic way, this is Sheldon. And Sheldon is the one that is, he's completely obnoxious, but he's brilliant. He's brilliant, but the problem is is he knows he's brilliant. And he loves to make sure everybody else knows he's brilliant. Uh, And so what's fascinating is that every so often, though, someone convinces him that he might possibly be wrong, and he has to stop and consider it. But, but when he's convinced that they're right, he's quick to repent. It's just really, really, it's really interesting. But he is, he is I think, the kind of the quintessential person that knows that they know. But then there are the people who don't know that they know. And these are the people who are constantly selling themselves short. They have a certain humility about them, but can become crippled by their lack of self-confidence. And this is, this is on the show. Again, if you're, if you're not familiar, I'm sorry, none of this makes any sense to you whatsoever. But if you are, you're tracking with me, I promise. Okay? This on the show is a guy named Leonard who's really, really is a stud. I mean, he gets the girl, the pretty girl across the hall, but his great demon is his own low opinion of himself. He can't ever quite overcome it and really become a man of confidence and, you know, that really goes to work and does the things he needs to do. Then there are the people who know that they don't know. They really do know that they don't know. And this is Raj, who is so dysfunctional he can't even talk to girls without the aid of alcohol, Okay. But he just knows. He's just a complete mess. 
And you kind of like him because he, you know, he, he doesn't have, has no pretense or error about him. He just knows I'm really messed up. Then there are those of us who don't know that they don't know. And these are the people who are completely deceived, completely lack self-awareness. And there's a certain tragedy about this kind of person in your life that I think the show captures so well in the character of Howard Wallowitz, who imagines himself a lady magnet. But in reality, he lives at home with his mother, and he dresses... uh, in ways that you really have to avert your eyes uh, for, for fear of being blinded. And he's so obnoxious that he causes the women around him to throw up in their mouths. And it's painful. It's painful to watch, but it is a good example. It's a really good example, I think. I told you, waxing philosophical this morning. It's a really good example of how we can all live not knowing, not knowing that we don't know. And that's the hardening by the deceitfulness of sin that the Bible talks about. Sin creates a lack of self-awareness. It turns us into Howard Wallowitz. It deceives us into thinking something to be true of ourselves that isn't true, and everybody else in our lives besides us knows it. But the problem is, is it dulls us to the truth so that we get careless or sloppy, and then it has us. So a sign of spiritual growth is that you're becoming a bigger sinner. Both you and the people around you are discovering more and more of your sin, but a sign of spiritual regression is you think of yourself as a sinner less and less. You become less aware of your sin and your struggles. So if that's the problem, then the solution is also here too in Hebrews chapter 3. And the solution is, uh, if the problem is that that I really am unaware of what's really happening in my life and the things that are really killing me in a way that everybody else in my life is aware... The solution is that I need friends who promise to keep their eyes on my life and to help me see myself better. The truth is that the people who know us best know us a whole lot better than we know ourselves. It's really the truth. The people who know us best know us a whole lot better than we know ourselves. And so it's unwise to not invite their presence and their evaluation. And that can be scary, I know. I know it can be scary to live in community. It is for me too, but I've been doing this for a while and I can tell you, no community... No good gospel friends around you is a sign that your soul is sick. So we need gospel friends because gospel friends, verse 24, they stir one another up. You see that there? And the best illustration of what that means is if you've ever ridden horses, you know that cowboys, it's sometimes not enough just to kick a horse because horses can be quite stubborn at times. And so what the cowboys do or the people who who ride horses for a living or, you know, in rodeos and whatnot, they put spurs on the end of their shoes because the spur literally digs into the side of the horse. uh, And and it's the digging action of the spur that causes pain and ignites, you know, jolts the horse forward into what the person is trying to get them to do. And that's, that's what it means to stir one another up. The word literally means, and I love this because it sounds so... um, it just doesn't sound very nice. And Christianity has taken on this just nice, you know, frame. But it really means to irritate one another. So if you, anybody have the spiritual gift of irritation? <laughs> right? If you do, you might be a good friend. Right? But we are so caught in this. No, we're just supposed to be nice, which means we, you know, just nice. It's just godliness equals niceness. But here... What we are called to do is to stop being quite so nice and sometimes to irritate the mess out of one another. 
to provoke or to incite the word means. It's the, you know, it's, have you ever had the experience to keep poking at one another until you just drive the other person crazy and they do, and they, they kind of, you know, get going. We need, we need gospel friends who are committed to irritating us towards obedience. Isn't that so earthy, gritty? That's the work of encouragement, verse 25. Encourage one another, he says. And when we think of that word encouragement, we we tend, here's my my perception of being in the Christian circles for a long, long time. When we think of encouragement, we think of hand-painted, personalized Hallmark cards that come in the mail uh, that tell us how wonderful we are or a friend bragging on social media about how great we are. But in reality, the work of an encouragement is a lot grittier. It has a lot more drill sergeant to it and a lot less cheerleader. Encourage one another is the Greek word parakaleo, which in the New Testament is the word for the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo one another, he says, which in context in this verse means something like get in one another's face. Look what he says, verse 25, don't neglect meeting together, don't ignore one another, but encourage one another. Don't be hit and miss in one another's lives. Get dirty and don't be on the periphery. Parakaleo one another, and it's, it's a word in the Greek that combines two prepositional phrases. Para... Uh, which is a, a prepositional prefix, which means to come alongside of, and the verb kaleo, which means to speak or even to yell. So a paraclete is a friend who comes alongside of you to walk through life with you and to help you, but they come alongside of you and are committed to yell at you in the most loving way possible, of course. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. According to Jesus in John's gospel, the Spirit comes alongside of us to teach and to convict and to speak the truth. And so, I, you know, the best, the best way I know how to do this is I've, I, uh, a, a few times in my life I've gone to some of these group personal training sessions, right, with these people that you work out with. And, and their job is to just walk around. And if they see you slacking off, they get in your face and yell at you. You with me? Anybody else had this experience? And I, I, I hate it. And it embarrasses me. But, and I resent it. But what I've realized is if I go to Gold's Gym, I end up kind of just like, this is me at Gold's Gym, just kind of <laughs> like walking around, not doing anything. Until, unless there's something good in the cardio cinema, and then I'm okay. I can walk or run on the, on the gym, but, on the, the treadmill. But I typically, but if you've got somebody that you know is going to come and get in your face and get down and give me 20, you know, or whatever it is, you get a little nervous about that and you don't want them to do that. And so you get motivated. And that really is, you know, it's very unspiritual, I realize. But that really is, listen, that really is a metaphor for what it means for us to encourage one another, to motivate one another. And we need gospel friends who will encourage us, who will get down on the floor when we, you know, we've done five push-ups and we're supposed to do 50 and we've got 45 to go and we're ready to quit. And somebody get down on the floor and say, you can do it. Let's go. Let's do it. Or to come along. My favorite thing they do is when you're exhausted, they'll say, I'll do it with you as if that's supposed to make it easier or something. I still got to do it even if you're doing it with me, okay? Right, but we'll do it together, whatever it might be. It's a, great, it's a great image. And we need gospel friends like that. Because that's the only way to make progress against sin. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, good things as, be- as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing or the people that has them. And that's really helpful. Obedience is somewhat like catching the flu. You have to get around other people who have what you need. And we all know, it's an old illustration. If you take a piece of charcoal out of the middle of the fire and place it to the side, we know what happens. 
It loses its heat quickly, and the only way to start it burning again is to put it right back into the middle of the fire with all the other bricks, and soon it'll start to glow red. And so this is why the worst thing you could possibly do is to neglect to meet together. This is the habit of some, verse 25. Now, he does not say, as, as some do on occasion, he says, a habit, a consistent practice, a way of life is what he's describing here. The habit of gathering in the same place with the same group of people. So we're not talking about, okay, we're not talking about, you know, you can't go on vacation in the summer or you're going to hell. Okay, nobody says, I hope not because I won't be here next Sunday. So none of this stuff applies to next Sunday. Everybody gets a free pass, okay, because I'm going on vacation finally. This is, we're not talking about just occasional. I'm, I'm speaking to what might, what might creep in in the middle of the summer of just, you know what, they're just, just get into a habit, we, but, and, and so the habit of gathering together in the same place with the same group of people week after week in small groups to talk about your life is a great preventative against sin. Don't neglect it. And then lastly, I'm arguing for diligence toward corporate worship because we need gospel truth and we need gospel friends. And thirdly, we need gospel practices in verse 25, he writes, Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I want to focus on that word habit there. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he says, Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're turning slowly this central thing, either into a heavenly creature or to a hellish creature. And so according to C.S. Lewis, every sin leaves a mark on the soul that makes it harder to resist that temptation the next time around. Sin creates momentum. Habits create momentum. This should make sense. We all know. We all know that habits reinforce behavior. They create desires and appetites. So if you eat meat and potatoes every night at dinner, day after day, year after year, when dinner comes around, your body will crave what? Meat and potatoes. Through your habit of eating meat and potatoes every night at dinner, night after night, you've created an appetite. Now, Ashley tells me it's possible to create asparagus. <laughs> I think she lies. I'm not sure I believe her, but the only, way, the only way is to begin to eat them. I have a broccoli face in our house. It's kind of like this, <laughs> which I'm greatly discouraged to not use because then the children follow suit too often. But the only, way, the only way to eat good things is to start to eat them day after day. And what I've been told, though I've not experienced it very much, is that eventually you can untrain your body. It will stop craving what is bad and start craving what is good. And that's why the Hebrew writer points us to this word habit. What are your habits, he says. And the reason he points us to habits is because it's the way unbelief works. It doesn't happen overnight. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Pay careful attention to what we've heard lest we drift away. And in the few short years we've been together as a church, there have been so many people who have been here week after week, and then something happens, the birth of a baby or some busy season that comes in the family, and they get out of the habit of coming to worship, and then eventually they're gone altogether. It happens all the time because that's the drift. It's drift. It's slow. It's imperceptible. It happens in the little things, and that's why this letter says over and over, take care, pay careful attention, be diligent, don't take a break. I know from my personal experience that a one-week vacation is long enough to disrupt the habits of healthy eating and living that I'm so desperately trying to establish. And if it takes seven days 
to develop bad habits that make it harder when you get home to eat well and so forth, I can promise you it takes even less time to develop bad spiritual habits. And so a spiritual lesson for us to learn as we come to a close this morning, desire follows habits. Desire follows habits, not the other way around. It doesn't work the other way. Desire follows habits, so don't wait for desire. And the summer, because there's more time available to you, is a great time to develop gospel practices that can carry you through the busier time during the school year. What are those practices? There's a general curriculum, a set of disciplines that we have constructed as our life together as a church. We need gospel truth, as we've said every day. And so we're committed to reading the Bible together on a daily basis. That is our community Bible reading program. We need gospel friends. And so we're committed to living life together and befriending one another in small groups that we call community groups. We, we need gospel practices. This is what we've been saying. And so we are committed to practicing the gospel together in our worship liturgy. And it's the same thing week after week. And because we believe that the monotony of it and the repetition of it creates deeper roots. That standing still in one place allows roots to deepen. But can I say one more thing? Notice... And all that I've said this morning, notice that it is gospel truth and not just truth that we need. Notice that I've said it's gospel friends and not just friends. Gospel practices and not just practices. Because truth that is not rooted in the gospel of grace in Jesus will not overcome unbelief. It will only deepen it. And friendship that does not have the gospel as its fountain will either lack the grit that it needs or the grace that it needs to truly help you overcome your spiritual blindness. And practices that aren't gospel practices, that is, that don't have as their aim to connect you to the unbelievably great news of God's love and care for you in Jesus Christ. Practices void of that have no life. The good news of God's doing for us is the power for obedience. So please... Heed the words, heed the words of this writer to us this morning. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And let us, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray together this morning. Father, it is not often that we uh, come across people in our lives who are willing to cross our will. We really do like to live according to our own wisdom and to live according to our own desires. And so when we come to a text like this and it so clearly challenges uh, the way we would uh, be tempted to to live, uh, that it calls us to a diligence that feels hard. uh, And so the slothfulness, the spiritual slothfulness of our soul react in such a way that we clearly begin to object. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would give us grace, that we would hear and receive and like the good soil uh, that took the word and planted it deep so that it bore fruit. I pray that texts like this would bear fruit in our lives, that we would not become moralists. That's not at all what we want, but that we not be afraid in the name of becoming moralists to be disciplined and intentional and to have habits and spiritual disciplines that we give ourselves to because we know that they are the fire hydrant that gushes forth the gospel drenching that we so desperately need. And so, Father, do give us wisdom. Keep us from the sin of moralism. 
of just doing things for the sake of doing them or because they make us, they make, our doing of them makes us feel better about ourselves or makes us feel spiritually superior or gives us a, a standing with you, but also keep us from uh, the laziness and the sloth that would so captivate our hearts that we would, um, that we would perish in the wilderness for lack of bread. Come and form us as a people. Uh, who in our life together have our, have our community life together centered around gospel truth, who are committed to befriending one another in the gospel and producing through those friendships gospel practices that edify and encourage each of us. These are our hopes and prayers, and we pray that you do that great work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The goal of our preaching and the reason we have songs at the end of our service is to invite uh, response. And the response to God's word is to move away from our sin and in repentance and toward him in faith. But even as we do that, here's what we have to be careful. What we have to be careful to do in that movement of repentance and faith is we consider how we would change our lives in light of what God has said to us this morning. We have to make sure that we're not moving away from the good news of God's doing back into the false gospel of our doing for him. And here's the thing, see, even though we were clear about that seven minutes ago, I promise you, if your heart's anything like mine, you've already forgotten. And so the temptation would be for you to leave here, maybe discouraged, maybe full of hope at all of the great changes that you're going to make in your life. And if you're not careful, you're moving out away from the good news of his doing for you into the deadly doing of your own uh, that only brings condemnation. And that is why at the end of our service, as we are called to leave to go on mission to the places that he sent us, we have this benediction which promises us that it's his power, that it's his face, that it's his grace, his resources that we need, the very things that are promised to us that he promises to give that become the power and the strength that we need to go and do the things he's called us to. So receive the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.